2: We've seen a ton of volatility in stocks and financial markets as of late. And there's been a ton of talk of inflation. This comes after several years of stocks just killing it. A lot of high growth names making a ton of money. And then you have the backdrop of Russia and Ukraine. So for the first part of the podcast, we're going to bring in Chuck Carlson to briefly talk about markets, inflation, the volatility, and how a potential Russian-Ukraine incident could impact markets. And then I'm going to bring on Jeff McCoslin, CBS Radio's national security consultant. And we're going to talk about the nuts and bolts of what's going on between Russia and Ukraine. And we're going to kind of delve into the military aspect of all of this. So we got a great show ahead of us. We're talking markets. We're talking potential military action between Russia and Ukraine. I'm Andy Gersher, and this is Gaines. All right. First of all, let's bring on Chuck Carlson, CEO of Verizon Investment Services, publisher of the Dow Theory Forecast newsletter in Hammond. He's also author of Winning with the Dow's Losers. Well, Chuck, always great to have you on the Gains podcast.
3: Yeah, Thank you, Andy. Thanks yeah. for having me. Always a pleasure.
2: The tensions between Russia and Ukraine as of this taping have cooled off a little bit. The market reacted stocks up, you know, that I was up four or 500 points for the session, uh, a little bit of a relief rally here. But that's why I wanted to bring you on today um, during times of potential conflict. Uh, we definitely see markets get a little edgy, and I wanted to just get your take on things. I mean, where are you seeing things right now?
3: Well, you know, on the one hand, it's always nice to see kind of a, a, a move upward. I think I've mentioned to you before that I'm always a little concerned when you have You know, three, four, or five hundred point moves in either direction. Those just aren't the types of moves that are indicative of a market that's that's you know an investor's market. It's more of a trading a trader's market. So, uh, yeah, it's good to see the market go up. But you know, uh, if if in fact this was a relief rally based on uh, tensions cooling, at least for a, a seemingly cooling. You know, they could fire right back up, and about you know, as soon as you and I get done with this interview, and you could see, you know, tomorrow the the, the market pull back. So I wouldn't I wouldn't be basing an investment program around what's going to happen in in the Ukraine. I I think today, for example, you have got a relief rally, but I my guess is that was a lot of it was kind of short driven, where. Uh, you know, there's a lot of money that's gone on the short side here in anticipation that there is going to be an invasion, and any kind of whiff that maybe that's off the table is going to get the shorts covered, which I think we saw today. Again, those aren't typically the sort of sustained moves that you like to see, but uh, you know, at least for today, we'll take it.
2: Well, you know, and then the other thing it, is Ukraine, Russia, even really moving the market. It's not necessarily a big deal for economies. I mean, there's a geopolitical thing here and there's an energy thing here. But um, is there a possibility that Russia, Ukraine, you know, that's just kind of saber rattling in the background. And, you know, we've talked about what really moves markets. Is this even a factor here, Chuck?
3: Well, that's a good point. I mean, it's certainly probably a factor on, you know, the day to day Activity, but it is not among those three primary engines of sustained moves in the market. And those are again corporate profits, interest rates, and inflation. And and today, you know, while it it, it would appear to be a, a ref, you know, a, 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 a rally driven by kind of short covering, perhaps there's an element to it where you know we had a PPI number that was incredibly hot from an inflation standpoint, and some of the thinking may be, you know, that that number has to represent a peak. I mean, it's not that, you know, that number is not sustainable either. And so maybe we're getting, uh, you know, at least the thinking today might have been maybe we're getting closer to a peak in inflation. And, you know, that's always something that's strange for investors. It's like, geez, this reading comes out and it's awful and the market goes up. Well, again, the market's forward-looking and perhaps the market is discounting the future uh, and discounting the worst and saying, you know, Right now, we are seeing the worst from an inflationary standpoint. This is not sustainable. And, you know, six months from now, inflation is not going to be where it is right now. Perhaps that was another factor driving the market. Again, and you bring this up, it's always kind of dicey to try to ascribe one major reason to why the market does anything on a daily basis or weekly basis or monthly basis. And, uh, again, while the Ukraine-Russia issue is an issue, will impact volatility, the more important issue from a longer term perspective for the market is, is is what's going to happen with inflation and interest rates. And in fact, if they are peaking or the, or the market is discounting that they're close to peaking, that's potentially good news for, for the market six months hence.
2: Have you had any calls from clients that are concerned about the Russia, Ukraine thing? And the other thing is in a situation like this, which is going on saber rattling, that kind of thing. And, are you doing anything different? That's a, a, another thing. Or, or, or are you just kind of just a wait and see? Or you're watching other things? I mean, w- what's the move here?
3: Yeah, we're 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 not we haven't done anything uh, to reflect what's going on in Russia because I, I again I, I don't think it's the type of situation that uh, other than kind of short very short term volatility is something that ultimately drives the market in a major direction one way or the other so we haven't changed course at all based on that uh, you know w- when we change course it's when we get a signal from the, the market that uh, to do so and and that signal comes through the prism of as you know the Dow theory so you know what we continue to watch is you know is the Dow theory still uh, on a bull market signal are we still holding that those uh previous significant lows in the dow industrials which are 3422.04 that point is you know top of mind for us and uh you know and that's kind of the, the beauty of having a process and a system now it, it, having said that it it's these things are not 100% foolproof and they do make mistakes but you know, the the questions you ask is, is Russia and Ukraine going to be a bigger, a bigger factor for the market? Is inflation going to be a bigger concern for stocks? Are interest rates going to rise to a point where they start, uh, you know, uh, fixed income starts pulling money away from equities? All those things, I don't know for sure, but I'm willing to bet on what the market tells me, and the market will tell me that through the prism of the Dow theory. If, in fact, those lows in the industrials are taken out on a close, then that tells me that, uh, yeah, there's some problems going to be out there. And, you know, maybe all of the above are going to be a problem for this market. But so, so that's kind of, we let the market kind of tell us the story and, and it hasn't told us a very story just yet.
2: We talk about this often. I, I mention it that we look at the charts and find those levels and then just let the news fill in the dots because that's how it often happens. Um, yeah, really. Yeah, I mean it's it, it amazes me. Um, so in in a lot of ways, you're not really using this Russian Ukraine thing to dictate. You're you're sticking with your plan, which is great advice. Um, if something happens, we often you know say Russia moves in, partially moves into uh, Ukraine, markets get uh, spooked, and there's some kind of sell off, uh, knee jerk reaction. In that case, and I've said this before, I'm going all in, triple long. That stuff almost always snaps back, especially in a, uh, a geopolitical thing in Europe. I, what, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, if you saw a knee-jerk reaction because the news got a little frothy and the market sell off, do, do you, like me, see this as just a great buying opportunity and to just jump in hardcore? Yeah
3: it may be with the caveat that if the low in the dow industrials hold uh then then yes i would feel more comfortable buying on these these sorts of things if on the other hand that low gets taken out on a close then that indicates to me that there's there's more bubbling here than just uh, a Russia invasion of the Ukraine, that, that may be the least of the market's problems.
2: So, That's interesting. So, uh, That's interesting. Yeah. So it's it's still, and, and and I guess this is the message from you today, is, and we've talked to you about, you know, the, the things that you use to come up with a plan. You're very, very disciplined. Stick to the plan, chart the markets, let the news items fill in, explain yeah let the
3: market weigh the import of these of these news items and these develops developments don't don't try to make some judgment because the market does a pretty good job of 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 rating and evaluating these sorts of things and and so you know i'd rather kind of see what the market says about their import if in fact you get a uh you know russia charges into to to the ukraine and the market goes down you know 700 points in a day but it holds that that low um then you know see what happens on the following day if it looks like it's going to hold that you know hold that low maybe maybe do some buying if on the other hand the market takes out that low like a hot knife through butter um that probably is an indication that that there's there's more negatives to the story here and and, and maybe n- don't be kind of jumping in with both feet because there may be some further weakness here. So yeah, I mean, ultimately we're going to let that kind of tell the tale. We're, we're, I mean, just to give you an idea. We're pretty f- fully invested right now. You know, we probably have uh, you know accounts anywhere from eighty nine to ninety three percent invested in stocks. So it's not like we don't have plenty of skin in the game. So. Um, you know that that's and and the reason for that is that you know we're still finding opportunities and we still believe the primary trend, as per the Dow theory, is still bullish. Now, if that would change, we would become more defensive. We'd raise some cash and 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 pull our horns in a little bit. But uh, you know we haven't gotten there yet. And and it's interesting that you know with all the the storm and drong and all the the craziness and all the volatility and all this geopolitical stuff and inflation and interest rates and all that, you know, th- that low is held pretty closely. And, and, you know, we're we're almost as close to a new all-time high in the Dow Industrials as we are to a, to a significant low in them. So, um, you know, in and, and all of this action and discounting that the market has done, it's, it's hung in there pretty well. And I think you have to respect that, and we do.
2: And, you know, th- I, I think that's a great point to make, you know avoid the headlines getting caught up in the emotion follow the dow theory and as you mentioned too yes those that lower level had been breached several times during the trading session but then it never closed below those so real quick as we're wrapping up today's uh gains podcast we're going to you know get into the nuts and bolts of a potential uh, invasion of Russia into Ukraine with military expert uh, Jeff McCausland um, here in a second. But as we're wrapping up the stock market portion of today's gains episode, hit on those key levels that we're watching. So get a piece of paper right now. We'll give them a second and a pen. All right. Now Chuck's going to give you these levels on the top side and the bottom side that we're watching, and we're we're not looking at headlines we're looking at market levels. Go ahead, Chuck.
3: The important point on the downside for the Dow Jones Industrial Average is the December 1st closing level of 34022.04. So that number is 34022.04. Now, for the the Dow for for the, a reconfirmation of a bull market, uh again, we're in a bull market, but it but, you know, it it it's always nice to see reconfirmations of those trends. You would first need the Dow Jones Industrial Average to go back above its previous high which is 36799.65 um that would be you know a, a real nice development and again we're we're not all that far from that level the, the other issue that you would need to see though is a reconfirmation of a new high in the Dow Jones transportation average and that's the one that that's a little stickier because it's significantly higher than where the the, the transport sit today that that high is seventeen thousand thirty-nine. So, uh, but uh, and you've seen this, Andy, time and time again. It's just when you think the transports are, are kind of out of the game, they can put points on in a huge oh, hurry.
2: We have we've seen it many many times. They'd be left for dead, and then all of a sudden they've caught up.
3: Yeah. So you know that. that so that's that's kind of on the upside, which would need. But uh, important, most importantly for the for the short term is. Well the Dow will be able to the industrials will be able to hold that low. And that low again is thirty-four thousand twenty-two point zero four. That's the low and it needs to be held. And it, and it if, if it's gonna go through it, it needs to go through it on a close.
2: Trust the system, trust the method you're using, and uh I guess discipline is is key because it's it's easy to get uh, caught up in all the emotion, huh, Chuck? Oh, sure,
3: yeah. I mean, if, you know, when the markets are moving around and, and you're losing money and uh, it's, or at least the value of your portfolio has come down, it, yeah. it's it, and, and, and that's kind of, that angst is kind of doubled when you think about, you know, people kind of are anchoring on the big gains that they've had in the last few years, particularly last year. And, and the, you know, the human emotion says, I don't want to lose those. So you tend to, Uh, be reactive to these sorts of declines. Uh, Investors should really try not to do that because typically you're, you're probably, you know, my history and experience has showed that you tend to sell right at the worst possible time when the pain is the greatest, but that also typically signals bottoms or close to bottoms as well. So just kind of push that, push that pain, push that pain away.
2: Any uh, parting shots uh, as we wrap up uh, the markets portion of today's gains podcast, Chuck?
3: No, you know, I, one thing is, you know, we've we've taken a shine to a few energy stocks, and they they have sold off today. On you know, again, the the, the thinking there is if if you have this geopolitical um, tensions ease, that's going to you know reduce uh, crude oil prices, for reducing some of these energy the values of some of these energy stocks that that could happen in the short term. I still think that group is a decent group for 2022. So, you know, that's, I would look for an opportunity or two in those sectors, uh, in in the energy sector. If in fact, you do get that sell off on these tensions easing, if that continues.
2: And then one last thing I always ask you for it. Um, You know, Chuck is CEO of Verizon investment services, publisher of the Dow theory forecast newsletter but he has something the gains listener would be interested uh talk about that that growth uh report that you uh, yeah. often plug. We
3: publish a we publish a newsletter that focuses on s- smaller companies. It's called Upside and you know for for your gains listeners that that want you know a bit more action and but but in quality and I you know not we don't do my, anything in meme stocks. I mean these are quality Low price or uh, low, uh, low cap, small cap, and mid cap stocks. Uh, it, this is a nice newsletter. We've been doing it for a long period of time, and uh, I think we're pretty good at it. So you, you be the judge, and you can get a 30 day free trial of Upside. Uh, just go to the website upsidestocks.com and you can sign up for the free trial there. That's upsidestocks.com.
2: Always appreciate it, Chuck. We'll uh, have you on the Gaines podcast again real soon. Thank you, Andy. So that's going to wrap up the markets portion of the Gaines podcast. We're going to delve into the military aspect of this in just a second after our break. Hey, real quick. Hey, be sure to subscribe follow. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if that's an option for you. And as always, subscribe and turn on those notifications so you know when a new episode drops. We are back Thursday afternoon. We're going to look at the military aspects of Russia and Ukraine when we get right back from the break. Okay, so we're going to take a look at Russia and Ukraine, and I'm bringing on a military expert, Jeff McCausland, a retired U.S. Army colonel. He's also CBS Radio National Security Consultant. He's also author of the book Battle Tested Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. So, Jeff, real quick, before we get into Russia and Ukraine, I wanted to ask you about your book, Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. You have a military background and have looked at things from a military lens, but a lot of the lessons you've learned along the way, especially on leadership, can be applied to Organizations across the board, kind of explain that for us.
1: That good leadership is good leadership. Cultures of organizations will change somewhat, but the essential principles of good leadership, and doesn't matter if you were back leading the Israelites out of Egypt or your twenty first century corporate leader, uh, those remain the same. Uh, and second of it, I think people tend to learn better if you use a story that connects concepts which are common across organizations uh, to that discussion. And so I use these historical case studies, again, as in the book, using the Battle of Gavisburg to examine that. But it's also my belief that if you visited an organization, you were allowed free access and you were a pretty intelligent person or you had a group of people and you had pretty free access. After some time, you could say how well or how poorly it was run, but if you were there when it was a crisis, well, good leadership or bad leadership is going to stick out in bold relief, allowing you to illustrate those common principles once again. So that's why I use these. Uh, case studies, I find people enjoy them, and it gives them sort of, a, if you will, an intellectual stickiness. The concept stays with them, I think, longer because they continue to tie that concept, emotional intelligence, strategic vision, effective communications, to that story.
2: Give us a specific example when you've tied a particular battle or military event to a
1: leadership skill. Explain that. Sure. Well, yeah. let's use the, the attack on Pearl Harbor because most people are pretty familiar with that. If you'd had a breakfast, I have often said, the morning of December 7th, 1941 in Washington, D.C. Washington's about six hours time uh, earlier in the day than in Hawaii. And you were the chief of naval operations and you had every admiral in the Navy at that breakfast. And if you said that assembled group people... What is our brand? When you think about the Navy, what, what comes to mind? What picture kind of pops to your head, which all organizations need to think about periodically? I'm confident every person there would have said the battleship, the battleship. That's that's a picture in my mind, the battleship. And if you went on to Honolulu at, at six, 7 o'clock in the morning, the attack would begin at 8. At 7 o'clock in the morning, that was probably true for the vast number of sailors in, in that particular area. By 10 o'clock in the morning, that was no longer true because what we had shown was that piece of technology now has been overcome by advances in technology. And that's what all of us struggle with is trying to integrate technology into making organizations effective, but also being on the outlook where new technologies might be need to be integrated for overall organizational effectiveness. And then finally, use Pearl Harbor for a second, the power of assumptions. You know, You know, it's fascinating, Andy, If you look at the 9-11 Commission report and the executive summary, one of the things they talk about for the 9-11 report was this was a failure of imagination for 9-11. We could not imagine a handful of guys would learn how to fly a plane, hijack several, and try to crash them into the Capitol. Well, the same is true once again back in Pearl Harbor. No one could imagine the Japanese would do that. No, they they weren't sitting on their hands. They were preparing for war, but we were going to go to war. The war wasn't coming to Hawaii. So again, all organizations have to do what? We all live off of implicit and explicit assumptions. As a leader, every once in a while, you got to step back and say, Are those assumptions for my organization still valid? You know,
2: that Pearl Harbor example, you mentioned the morning before the attack, that branding would have been the battleship. Exactly. Um, after that attack, what was the
1: branding? Well, the brand was the aircraft carrier. Right. And what's fascinating as well in that regard, to carry this one step farther. It shows what I think, during a crisis, the power of being a learning organization. Because attack on Pearl Harbor occurs on the 7th of December, 1941. By about the 12th of April, 1942, what happens? Well, the United States launches bombers off of an aircraft carrier, and we bomb Tokyo. Now we'd never done that before. Is that
2: when they went and that ditched the the aircraft yes. in uh, in yep. China? Yep, that yeah, was in the China the, Sea. The, okay, the
1: Doolittle raid. Yeah, Doolittle raid, the Doolittle okay. raid. But we'd never done that before. So between December seventh, nineteen forty one, and early April, nineteen forty two, we figured out how to do that. We had never launched bombers from aircraft carriers, so they went through all kinds of training, hand selected crews, stripped the aircraft of a lot of the weight, practiced using yellow lines to mimic the the size. Uh, on a landing strip of an aircraft carrier, and we pulled that off. This is called resilience and being a learning organization. Then if you move ahead to June of 1942, now less than six months since the attack, what happens? Well, the Battle of Midway occurs, which is the most pivotal battle in the entirety of the war in the Pacific, at least. And In that particular battle, the battleships and cruisers that were part of both the Japanese and American fleet never got within gunfire range of each other it is aircraft carrier against aircraft carrier and in that regard we sink four japanese aircraft carriers they sink one of ours so it's clear that the paradigm has shifted and the brand is now quite different
2: fast forward to today we're talking russia and ukraine (laughs) i'll tell you um full disclosure we talked about a month ago a month to six weeks ago jeff no no surprise here a full credit to you. I, when we when we talked literally well over a month ago. We talked about this particular day, and we discussed a, you know where basically where we are right now. And let's let's start there. What's the latest that you're hearing as Russia's right at the border with Ukraine?
1: Well, this precise moment, I guess there's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is the Russian military forces continue to grow. Along the borders of Ukraine, uh, estimate now the total forces Russians may have arrayed—ground, air, sea—140,000 or more. Vast majority of those along the eastern border of the Ukraine. But in the last couple days, a major joint exercise has begun in Belarus, which is Russian and Belarusian troops. About 30,000 Russians doing exercises scheduled to go until the 20th of February. And many people believe. This not only offers Putin the opportunity to invade Ukraine from the north, but likely Belarusian troops would contribute to that particular invasion. Meanwhile, along the southern part of the Ukraine, the Black Sea, we've seen a dramatic expansion in Russian naval presence. There are, least, there are up to 13 amphibious landing ships, uh, either in the Black Sea right now or due to arrive shortly. So they could, in fact, do an amphibious assault on the southern coast of the Ukraine adjacent to Crimea an attack from the south. Well, that's all going on. The Russians have now announced a major naval exercise in the Black Sea to include live fire drills, which has basically shut off the ports of the Ukraine, at least temporarily, and in essence blockaded uh, the Ukraine. So they're now encircled on three sides. That's the bad news. Good news is there is still some suggestion of diplomacy perhaps as a path. And tomorrow we know Olaf Scholz the Chancellor of Germany, who today is in Kiev, will go on to Moscow for direct meetings with uh, Mr. Putin. We know over the weekend, Mr. Biden spoke to Mr. Putin for an hour. President Macron of France spoke to Mr. Putin for an hour, discuss, r- recommending a diplomatic track. Uh, whether that has any traction or not uh, we, remains to be seen. Finally, there was a televised uh, interchange between Putin uh, and his foreign minister, Mr. Lavrov, and which Putin said publicly in the last 24 hours, uh, is there any chance for a diplomatic, you know, path here, or you know, and Lavrov, both said to him in that particular interview, yes, I think there is, and we should pursue that, but we can't do this in an endless way. The one thing the Russians have said, this cannot be a, you know, a long, continuous diplomatic exchange. There is no doubt about it. This is perhaps the tensest situation we've seen in Europe since the end of the Cold War.
2: We've seen satellite images of where the Russians have a lot of their troops. And I I want you to explain this. They're in a position where you're either going to do something or pull back and just kind of explain that dynamic, what we're seeing and why. Intelligence says, you know, this could happen very, very soon.
1: Yeah, and I actually went through this. I commanded a battalion during the Gulf War. And as we were preparing to invade Iraq in February of um, almost exactly, what, some 30 years ago uh, of 1991, we moved north up towards the Iraqi border, went into sort of marshaling areas, large areas, some distance from the border, make final preparation, refuel, rearm, get ammunition, all the supplies you're going to need. And then only a few days before the attack— we moved into what's called forward assembly areas, forward assembly areas only being a few miles from the border. Uh, well, that's what we see the Russian troops now doing, moving from those large marshalling areas at some distance from the border, now moving very close in more battalion tactical group formations, troops now living out in the, in the field in tents and whatever. Uh, so you just cannot keep them at that operational edge for an indefinite period of time. Now, there was a famous foreign minister of France back during the end of the Napoleonic era who once said, the one thing you can't do with bayonets is you can't sit on them. So once you get to that position, it's go or no go, and a decision can't be made, but we can't stay in this position indefinitely. It's clearly they're going to either move forward, and that's why they think this might be
2: potentially imminent, because they are in a position where they're either going to move, or I guess the alternative, they can't stay there, is then to back off. If Russia does move into Ukraine, they're bringing a lot of firepower, as you mentioned, an enormous number of uh, troops. They've choked off the country on three sides. What would that situation look like if if Russia did go ahead and make that move into Ukraine?
1: Well, to begin with, the Russians um, like surprise. In this case, they've given away strategic surprise because of the mounting of the force. They'll still want tactical surprise. When's the exact moment the attack is going to occur? Second of it, they, they want to go in hard. They want to go in fast. These are all principles of Russian military doctrine. They were principles of Soviet military doctrine. What does that translate into? <clears throat> An attack like this will begin, I would imagine, with a massive artillery, missile, close air support bombardment, which will try to crush the Ukrainian troops, or at least demoralize them before the advance begins. And then a rapid attack using heavy armored forces, tanks, armed personnel carriers try to move as quickly as they possibly can to envelop and destroy Ukrainian forces. Probably try to be in Kiev, the capital, which is about midway across the country, east-west, in in a couple of days to get this over with fast. That being said, there are several different routes they could take. I've seen up to nine. But in essence, I'd say it's sort of three ways they could go about this. One is try to take the entirety of the country. I actually don't think they will do that simply because I don't think they have enough troops to occupy the Ukraine. They may have enough troops to defeat the Ukrainian army, but occupying the whole country, well, goodness, it's the size of Texas and there's 40 million people. You'll need a lot more troops to do that. They could move halfway into Ukraine as far as the Dnieper River, which runs north-south, take Kiev, put in some kind of a puppet government that does whatever they tell them to do and call it at that. Or they could move in in a much more... Uh, limited incursion, if, invasion, if you will, scoop up these two provinces that have been under rebellion, supported by them since 2014 in the Donbas region, perhaps seize some of the territory along the Sea of Azov to connect Russia proper with Crimea, and perhaps move north out of Crimea somewhat to secure water supplies because one problem Crimea has is only 10 percent, it has only 10 percent of the fresh water it needs. So Crimea right now is dependent on Ukrainian fresh water the Russians might want to eliminate that problem.
2: If Russia goes for Kiev, it's fast and straight there. Uh, do you think it's more apt that they they take some of these territories that you know, the population on the ground often a, a larger number are leaning towards, you know, wanting to be part of Russia, those seem to be really easy areas to uh, you know, take over that you may even have locals waving to tanks as as they pass by. Uh, which route do you think is most likely? Uh, you know, and 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 I guess the big question is, why does Russia want Ukraine anyway? I mean, there's going to be a lot of expense involved there. Uh, there's just a lot to this. If you could explain,
1: well, of course he's going to have. To, he has military means and political ends. Okay, and the political end here is to make sure that at the end there is a government in Kiev that is subservient to Moscow. Because one of the objectives that Russia has had ever since Putin has become president is to at least reassert political control over those countries that have large Russian populations. Putin has said, for example, that the end of the Soviet Union was the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century. He's also said that where there are Russians, there is Russia. And he's gone on and on about that. In 2008, when at the behest of George W. Bush, president of the United States, NATO offered membership at some distant point uh, to, to Ukraine. Uh, Putin was at that NATO summit and supposedly told George Bush, George, you have to understand Ukraine's not a real country. There are cultural, historical ties that bind them to us, um, which are eternal. <clears throat> now, some, a lot of people believe, as you suggest, Andy, that the Russian population, which is primarily in the eastern and southeastern part of the country, might find this attractive. That being said, I've read a great deal over the last few months that as this war in eastern Ukraine has gone on, which has gone on since 2014, 14,000 Ukrainians have died. And over that period of time, as the Ukrainian economy has improved somewhat, a lot of those people's enchantment with being part of Russia has gone down pretty rapidly. So I'm not quite sure he's going to see rose petals in front of the tanks, as you might think.
2: That brings us to, do you just take those areas or do you go all the way to Kiev? Uh, what's what's the strategic move here?
1: The strategic move here is whatever I do, I've got to make sure when this is over that my political objective is is is, uh, is attained. And that political objective is i got to get rid of this guy Zelensky and his government in Ukraine. i got to bring in a government that is willing to be uh, subservient to Moscow, a government that would reject any notion of joining NATO. I've got to do that. I can do that directly by going all the way to kiev and taking down the government i can do that indirectly perhaps by defeating and crushing the ukrainian military forces combining that with disinformation coups cyber attacks try to bring that government down and then from the ashes put people in place that are more subservient to me but at the end of the day my political goal is to get rid of this government in Kiev, to bring in a government that does what I tell them to do.
2: Looking on our side of the ledger, obviously the U.S. is going to be forced to do some things here. They've moved some troops into Poland, other places. Explain what the U.S. is doing right now. And then in a second, we'll talk about the big X factor, which I you know, I think is Germany in this. But let's talk about the U.S. first of all, what could they potentially do uh if things continue to get sticky here?
1: The Biden administration has announced most publicly uh, that 3,000 U.S. forces would go to Europe, and they have largely been dispatched. They have now um, announced that an additional 3,000 are on the way from the 82nd Airborne Division. 1,000 of those troops are part of the 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment Striker Group, which is based in Germany, and they've gone by rail and road transit to Romania. Uh, the 82nd has arrived in uh, in Poland with 1,700 paratroopers, And 3,000 more will arrive over the next week or so. We've also seen the positioning of more U.S. aircraft in the region, particularly in the Baltic Republics and other places. And right now we have a carrier battle group operating in the Mediterranean uh, involved in a major exercise with three other carriers from two other NATO nations, Italy and France. So we've got a a lot of naval presence as well. Um, So if, in fact, we see an invasion by Putin, What we'll see happen, I think, is a dramatic increase in U.S. presence. 8,500 troops here in the United States are still on alert. They might be moved very quickly to Europe. Obviously, they are not going, very explicitly by the administration, not going to Ukraine to fight in Ukraine. But where they will go is likely back to those countries that bore the Russian Federation who are NATO members, most notably Baltic Republics, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Poland, Romania— to both deter the Russians from thinking they could go any farther, though I think that's unlikely, but also to reassure, which is part of the equation, uh, our European allies, those members of NATO, that the United States does in fact stand behind its NATO commitments. Because we've got to think of this through, Andy. It to me, if you, and I worked in the White House, the one goal the Biden administration has is that the unity and cohesion of NATO, however this sorts itself out, is stronger on the other side than it was before. And at this crisis's onset... Uh, That credibility of the United States had somewhat frayed. Donald Trump, for four years, talked about pulling out of NATO, belittled all the NATO leaders, said at times the United States might not stand behind its NATO commitments. And that was not lost on Europeans. And furthermore, of course, uh, the NATO mission in Afghanistan was what it was. Uh, The credibility of the United States suffered there when we made that rather catastrophic withdrawal of forces back in September. So the Biden people, I think, understand that. And this is an opportunity, perhaps, to reassure our European allies that in future we do stand together.
2: Germany is the X factor here. Uh, You know, there's an energy component to this. Explain why, first of all, uh, Germany's the X factor, and then we can get into, you know, the pipeline as well, which is, it kind of plays into it. Explain
1: that. Well, Germany is the X factor because the Germans have always been the one country, major power, and, and perhaps the strongest economic power in Europe, so they were one of the pivotal countries of NATO. The pivotal countries, of course, are the United States, Great Britain, France, Germany, to some degree, Italy, perhaps. Those are the big people. And they'd always been a principal player, but also had been the one that had been seemingly most interested, for historic reasons, for good relations between the, the Western Europe and Russia, as well as good relations with the United States. Don't forget, of course, it was the Germans, guys like Willy Brandt back during the Cold War, who came up with concepts called Ostpolitik, we can have relations with the East, who pushed ideas of detente, who were very interested in a two-track approach to uh, the INF deployment of missiles in Europe uh, for negotiations and arms control. So the Germans have always tried to be that sort of bridge. And then furthermore, if you're Putin, you look out across the landscape of Europe, might say to myself, well, goodness me, there's a fairly weak-looking group of European leaders out there. We've got Mr. Johnson in in Great Britain, who is under terrible pressure right now, may have to resign over parties, of all things, during the corona pandemic. We've got President Macron, who's been in power quite some time, but he has to go for re-election in April, so he's right in the middle of an election campaign. And then we have Olaf Scholz, who is the new prime minister, or chancellor, I should say, of Germany over a fairly weak cohesion, uh, coalition of, uh, of three parties. And, of course, he's trying to replace uh, Angela Merkel, who probably one of the longest-serving chancellors in German history and probably one of the strongest German leaders. So Putin, I think, may factor all that together in saying, you know, the Germans are key here. And as we're speaking, <coughs> uh, Mr. Schultz is somewhere between Kiev and Moscow. He's supposed to be in Kiev uh, on Monday of this week and go to Moscow on Tuesday going back to battle tested
2: let's use a historic example to what is occurring in russia and ukraine right now
1: well you you certainly could i mean you could take uh, a couple different ways one might be a matter of strategic vision though it's i don't want anybody to think that i'm comparing vladimir putin to abraham lincoln but uh um putin has described a vision for moscow one we totally disagree with uh that moscow and russia he a great power for historical reasons, has this responsibility to look over uh, Russians wherever they are. He's articulated a vision for that, and from that also articulated a strategy, which has been to do various things. One is to undermine the legitimacy of the United States and liberal democracy. Two, drive fissures between us and our European allies. And number three, reassert that control over those particular countries. And he's implemented that strategy by doing a number of things. One, of course, he... He interfered in our elections, interfered in European elections, interfered in Brexit, uh, had dissidents living in Great Britain assassinated using nerve gas. 2008, he'll invade Georgia, take two provinces. 2014, he invades, invades the Ukraine. Well, let's flip that back and then compare it to Abraham Lincoln and Gettysburg, which I talk about in my book. On the 19th of November, 1863, uh, Abraham Lincoln. We'll step up to the podium in the cemetery at Gaysburg to deliver the Gaysburg Address, 272 words. But he was also communicating a strategic vision, one that had a lot more grounding and morality and integrity than Putin by a long shot. But he was articulating a vision, and his vision uh, is basically outlined by talking about where have we been, where are we right now, and where are we going? Where have we been fourscore and seven years ago, which takes you back not to the signing of the Constitution, which, but to the signing of the Declaration of Independence, which Lincoln thought was the foundational document for our democracy. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Where are we right now? Well, speech goes on to say, we are met on a great battlefield of this war. Where are we going? Well, we're going to a new birth of freedom. are going to a new birth of freedom. So in essence, by doing that, what Lincoln Done, had done was expand the vision strategic vision for the war like putin expanded a vision for russia up until that point the vision for the war the purpose for the war if you were in the north was to preserve the union that's what this was all about preserving the union By well, that remark that series of remarks lincoln was saying yeah it's still preserving the union but ending slavery now is is a key also objective for this particular conflict and of course then as general would articulate a strategy that would affect that militarily, and then politically, of course. Uh, getting once he got reelected, uh, he would announce the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, passed in early uh, 1865 before his assassination, which would end slavery. So there's a clear plan and vision, and regardless of
2: the organization, these are really. Key things to home in on. And and just,
1: again, hit those points that you made. All organizations have a vision and mission statement. What I find surprising to me is very few of them talk about it. And if you're in charge of the organization, these are the guiding direction for where you want this organization to move. So you need to talk about this a lot to get your people aligned, moving all in the same direction.
2: How do you counter that when you're going up against a foe? You know, and since these Art of War, if your foe is like that and, and, and is a good leader and and has come out and laid out a vision that maybe his folks can get,
1: you know, on board with, how do you counter that? Well, you have to think it through very carefully. You have to remember one key thing I always say, and that is don't ever forget your adversary gets a vote on your plan. <laughs> okay. Um, I like that. You, <laughs> that's true. You do X, they can do Y. I don't care if that's a business competition or a military competition or a sports competition. We saw that last night in the Super Bowl, did we not? Right. We're going to shut down the Los Angeles Rams uh, in terms of them doing a running game, which they had known through throughout the season. Great, you're going to do that, and we're going to change our strategy in terms of our passing game. So we got to vote on your plan.
2: So it's, adjustment. it's uh, that's, adjustments. That's that's the key thing yeah. is
1: adjustments. We see
2: that in sports. We see it across the board. All right. Well, you know what? As as we're wrapping up here, any kind of final shots, uh, parting shots here. And uh, maybe even uh, when this might go down, when are you, when are you seeing, I mean, this is looking very likely. We talked about uh, before we even came in the studio. uh, And as I even mentioned in the onset, uh, you've, uh, we've talked about this for a month now and you see this potentially going down very, very soon. So as we wrap up, uh, what, what are we looking at here over the next couple of weeks or days, weeks and so forth?
1: Well, to harken back to that discussion of battle-tested for a second, I always like to say leaders have to adapt, innovate, and overcome. And they've got to create a climate in which they encourage people in their organization to innovate and think different and to learn and overcome changing, the changing environment, like we've been doing for the last two years with the pandemic. When this is going to occur, well, obviously, I hope and pray it does not, though I think that the probabilities are pretty doggone high that it will occur I think the window is probably between sort of Wednesday of this week, frankly, and about the 21st or 22nd. Why that particular window? Because we've seen more and more of the troops now in these four assembly areas. They can't stay there indefinitely, particularly in the winter months there in the Ukraine. The 21st on the outside, why is that on the outside? Well, the Olympics end on the 20th. This, uh, this joint exercise between Belarus and uh, Russia scheduled to end on the twentieth when that ends, the Russians would said, well our troops will go home? Well, do they go home or do they head south or do they start building up assembly areas in Belarus? So that's why I think this is the most dangerous period of time
2: and you mentioned again, we are seeing assembly areas currently and you either gotta move or or uh, back off. so that's that's a very telling thing. Well, we'll continue to have you on WBBM. thanks for kind of holding our hands. Uh, You know, each week when we talk to you about uh, this developing story, Um, but, uh, you know, hopefully uh, things can work themselves out in a diplomatic way. But uh, uh, you're seeing a lot of evidence that kind of indicates this this could happen in very soon.
1: I'm afraid so, Andy, but we'll hope and pray that that does not occur and that that saner minds will triumph.
2: Thanks for joining us. I know you got to go. Hey, great to have you in the station and spending a – and it was good to have you spend a little time with us to explain this on the GAINS podcast. And, again, many thanks to Jeff McCausland, retired U.S. Army colonel, CBS Radio National Security Consultant. you got to check out his book, Battle Tested – Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. Uh, Check that out as well. That's going to wrap up the Gaines Podcast. As always, be sure to subscribe, follow, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and then as always, subscribe and turn on those notifications so you know when a new episode drops. We are back on Thursday. A lot going on. We're going to continue the discussion then. Look forward to it. I will see you Thursday afternoon. A news radio WBBM podcast powered by Odyssey.